name is Rob. I'm the pastor here at Christ Community Presbyterian Church. We're glad that you're here with us this morning. And uh, if you are a visitor, I just encourage you uh, to, we have a little visitor sheet in the back. Um, and I encourage you to fill out that form, help let us get to know you. Um, and uh, also, those of you who are regular attenders, just reach out to the people next to you. Say hi. Uh, get to know folks. All right, we are continuing our study in Deuteronomy. We're going to be looking at a bunch of chapters. So I'm going to preach five chapters of the book of Deuteronomy. So buckle up. Just kidding. Hopefully it won't be any longer, but uh, there is a lot of material here. And what I've done is I've, I've kind of teased out what I think are sort of summary or pertinent points in each of the, in the passages. So that's what we're going to read. Um, we are we're sort of coming, we've looked at over the past couple weeks, uh, the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Uh, and then uh, we've looked at that in various ways, but at the heart of it, we've been talking about how love begets love. And we've kind of delved into what the nature of God's love is and then what our love is in response to God. So we looked at the sort of jealous love of God for us and how he's called us to return uh, him with love, uh, return his love with love, and how his love begets our love, etc. But now we're kind of moving, we're shifting, if you will, to look at another aspect, uh, another, you might say, facet um, of this first commandment, and that is holiness, you might say, producing holiness, or a holiness, a holy God making a holy people. For himself. So with that, let's turn to the text. It's found for you in your bulletin. It's from a bunch of different chapters, Deuteronomy 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. So uh, let's turn and look at that together. Hear God's word. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. The faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes that the rules and the rules that I command you today. Chapter eight. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. Chapter 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Chapter 10. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods, and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. 
Your name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Chapter 11. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us to understand your word. Uh, Lord, give me the grace and uh, just the words to say this morning to point people to you and your holiness and your greatness and your love and your mercy. Lord, we need you. We need your spirit to be at work in our hearts. Uh, We thank you for the grace of the Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. R.C. Sproul, in his very famous and seminal work called The Holiness of God, uh, and, and I say seminal in just that it is the, the, the reference point. If you ever want to look at what does it mean that God is holy, uh, his work has defined for a generation the holiness of God and, and still does to this day. So I encourage you to go and to read his book. Um, it is a modern classic. Um, by the late R.C. Sproul. But in this book, he said, we tend to have mixed feelings about the holy. There is a sense in which we're at the same time attracted to it and repulsed by it. Something draws us toward it, while at the same time, we want to run away from it. We can't seem to decide which way we want it. Part of us yearns for the holy, while part of us despises it. We can't live with it. And we can't live without it. That's a great little line. It's kind of like the beginning of a tale of two cities. It's the best of times. It's the worst of times. And holiness of God has that sort of, that sort of tug of war that goes on in our hearts. And I want, to sort of exp- I want to explore that. I think it's a provocative statement that rings true. There's something about the holy that draws us and at the same time repels us or pushes us away. It's not too different if you think about the sun, right? We have the sun, and the sun is at the one time, this warm, glowing object that gives us warmth and light, and we are drawn to it. If you're in a dark place, you want to go to the light. But at the same time, to stare at the sun, or to get close to the sun, or to, to, to sort of gaze at it for any length of time is destructive. It was really interesting this past, this past summer with the, uh, the solar eclipse, um, it was a phenomenon, and literally a phenomenon. It was an amazing sight to behold. And here's the thing. You couldn't just look at it. You had to have special glasses. You had to have, and my kids made something out of cardboard boxes, right, or like cereal boxes. And they like turned away from the sun, and they could see the kind of shadow uh, uh, on it. But you couldn't look directly at this thing. And yet, everybody stopped what they were doing to check out this phenomenon. That's kind of the, this like dual thing. You, you want to look at it, you can't look at it, and if the news reports were all like, don't look at it, and yet there's that desire. Um, so it is with a holy God. 
There's that desire to approach, a desire to see it and touch it. But at the same time, there's terror and fear and loathing that keeps us away. Holiness as a concept is often described as meaning set apart. That's probably the literal word, set apart, holy, to be set apart. Um, And this is true, but there's more to holiness, isn't there? There's more to it than just something that is other. God is certainly other. He's transcendent. He's beyond our comprehension. But there's something more to this otherness. God is not just other. He is perfect. He is beautiful. He is glorious. And that beauty and that perfection and that glory is, on the one hand, the thing that draws us to him. And at the same time, repels us. So, what are we going to do this morning? Well, I want us to think about this, keeping that thought in mind. What what does it mean that God is holy? And what does it mean that he calls us to holiness? And I want us to think about this kind of, this dual thing that goes on in our hearts when we see the sort of majesty and magnificence of the living God. Um, and, And in the end, hopefully, by it. That's my goal, is that we wouldn't be repelled by this holy God, but that we would see the glory of him, particularly in the person of Jesus Christ. And so this is where I want us to go. First, that to look at the Lord as holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Secondly, God calls us to be holy. And then thirdly, he calls us to be holy, but he makes us holy. We are his treasured possession. So first, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And I, and I have to say at the outset of this, I apologize. As I try to dip my hands into this, I realize it's like I told Aaron on the way to church, it's like trying to get your arms around an elephant, but even bigger. It's such a concept that my words are going to fall short. So I apologize at the outset. And I think that's part of it. The, 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 the more we think on God, the greater his holiness becomes in our mind. And the, the more we, we struggle with it, the more it, it burns us, if you will, take that analogy of the sun. And I feel that. And as I bring it to you, I apologize for the weakness of trying to express something as great as the holiness of God. We have looked over the weeks um, how God was showing himself to Israel as the only true and living God. We've looked at this over and over again. Moses, throughout Deuteronomy, recounts over and over and over again all the mighty acts of God as he delivered them out of Egypt, as he led them through the wilderness, as he gave them water, and as he gave them manna, as he delivered them from their enemies, as he gave them the word, the law from Mount Sinai, as he forgave them in the midst of their own sin, and as he brings them to the precipice of the promised land, All of this he's been recounting to them, hasn't he? Over and over and over again. And it doesn't stop here. Chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10 and 11, he does it again. Chapter 7, I don't have it all printed for you, I'll just summarize. He recounts the exodus. He recounts the destruction of Pharaoh, as well as his promise to deliver them from the enemies, the Canaanites, and to deliver the Canaanites into their hand. Chapter 8, he again mentions the exodus from Egypt. But he adds his uh, provision for them in the wilderness, water and food, manna. 
Chapter 9, he mentions Mount Sinai um, and giving of the law and the people's rebellion at the golden calf. And in chapter 10, he recounts the covenant renewal that after their rebellion of worshiping the golden calf, he continues to be their God, to go in their midst, to forgive them. And then in chapter 11, he goes back to Exodus and the account of how God, through mighty signs and wonders, uh, performed deliverance for the people of God through, like, away from Pharaoh. So I just point that over, out because over and over again, the power and the might of God are recounted. Over, you can't read through Deuteronomy without seeing it. And it begs the question, why? Why does Moses seem to belabor this? Feels like it, because as a preacher, every text I come to, I'm like, okay. I already said this last week, and I said it the week before in one form or another. I said it the week before that. Why does Moses, why does he keep recounting? Well, I think he's trying to press upon them, impress with them, to them, That their God, Yahweh, the I Am, is the only true and living God. There is none like Him in all the earth. He is the great I Am, the self-existent one. But it's not only that there is none like Him in all the earth. It's more than that. Through these powerful acts, God is showing Himself to be both loving. He's redeeming them. He's purchasing them. He's buying them. Not just is he, he's loving them, but he's also showing his justice. He's showing his mercy, the love he has, and his wrath as it's poured out on, say, Pharaoh and the army or the Canaanites. And this is where I want us to start thinking about the holiness of God. The Lord reveals himself quite a bit in the to Moses personally. If we were to go back through Exodus all the way, we would see that he he talks to Moses. He and Moses have an intimate relationship. Uh, Maybe the only person who has a more intimate relationship in all of scriptures in some ways is the Lord Jesus himself. Uh, But Moses talks to man as a, talks to God as a man, talks to another man face to face. That's the way it's described. But there are two intimate encounters that Moses has uh, with God that surpass, if you will, at least in what is recorded for us, um, all the others. And the first was the burning bush. When Moses was called to go to Pharaoh, he was, he was being commissioned by the Lord to go to Pharaoh and to say, let my people go, right? That was what he had to do. And Pharaoh would say, no. And uh, then Moses would perform a mighty act um, through the Lord, uh, the power of the Lord. And then he would ask again, let my people go. Moses would be like, all right, all right. I'm not Moses, Pharaoh. And then, no, but before all of that, Moses met God at the burning bush. Do you remember that account? So what's this? A burning bush? He approaches, and as he's approaching this, this thing that is fiery and full of Um, just wonder because it's not being consumed. Moses approaches it and God says to him, Moses, take off your sandals because you are on holy ground. 
And as they, as he is in wonder and awe at this moment, uh, Moses says to God, who shall I say? As I go up to Pharaoh and, and, and ask him, he didn't really want to go, but as he's being told he's going to do this, he says, who should I say send, send, is sending me? In other words, who are you, God, speaking out of this fire? And Moses, and God says to Moses, I am that I am. I am the great I am, the self-existent one, the only true God. And it was in this context that Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, and Pharaoh says, why should I let you go? And he says, because I am said so. And then I am ultimately shows his power and his might and deliverance and destroying Pharaoh and through all the plagues. But there's a second time that stands out in this intimate encounter with Moses. This was after Israel had committed the sin of worshiping the golden calf, right? He had, uh, Moses was on the mountain, the golden calf. Uh, the people were afraid of God, so they asked Aaron to make this calf. They gave him his gold, and they built this calf and started to worship it. Moses comes down, and God is angry, and his wrath is being turned against his own people. So Moses intercedes three times on behalf of God. And it wasn't until the third time that God says, Okay, Moses, I know you. You're mine. And I know these people. And Moses says, but these are your people too. And he says, okay, I'll relent. I will go up with them to the promised land. I will go in their midst. And Moses is so astounded by the mercy of God that he is relenting, that he is not totally destroying the people of Israel, that he asks God a question. God, can I see? Can I see? Your face? Can I know you? Can I see who you are? God says, no. (laughs) No, Moses. No one sees my face and lives. But I'll do this, Moses. I'll take you. I'll put you into the cleft of this rock. And I'll pass by you. and, And you'll get to see the backside of my glory. And so he does this. He puts Moses into the cleft of the rock and he passes by Moses or passes by Moses. And he see and Moses sees the backside of his glory. But most significantly, significantly, the Lord says something. What does he declare? His name. I am Yahweh, the Lord. But he goes beyond that and he says these words. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Chapter 7 of our text repeats this. Moses repeats these these words to the people of God in verses 9. He says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Funny, this is such seminal, important 
declarations by God. They declare his name. They declare his character. They declare his person. And yet we almost always skip the second half. We always are like, oh, the Lord our God is the faithful God who keeps covenant. Or he's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness to a thousand generations. And then we stop. Why? Because we are uncomfortable, uncomfortable with these words, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, there is so much to be said about these words, and I, I would love to say more. But I just want us to know this, to know this, that we are attracted and repelled. Who is a God like this? A God who shows love and kindness and faithfulness, who forgives iniquity and sin, who has covenantal love for us, a people that, that didn't know him and didn't care about him. And then in the same breath, who is a God like this, who does not, what does it say? Who will by no means clear the guilty? How do we make sense? makes us uncomfortable. And I think it should. Look at verses, uh, look at verse 20 and following of chapter 10. It's printed in your bulletin. This conundrum, it says, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear, he is your praise, he is your God, who has done for you this great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. In these verses, we see these themes again. On the one hand, there's a call to fear the Lord. And on the other, it says he is is your praise and your God who made you into a great nation. But on the other hand, it says he has done these great and terrifying things. I think the trouble that we have of this seeming paradox that God is loving and merciful and God is full of wrath and is against ungodliness is not in the things themselves. It's not because he is both fully loving and full of anger and wrath towards sin. It's not that we, that's the issue. The issue isn't there. And the issue isn't that God is fickle or that there's some sort of yin and yang going on. I don't think that's the issue that we have. I think the real issue that we have with this Reality that God is both loving and merciful and just and wrathful is that when we come in contact with this God, we are exposed. We're exposed. All our impure impurity, our ugliness, our sin is exposed. We desperately want to be like him. We're attracted to his beauty and to his perfection. But the like him. And so, as Sproul said, we despise him for it. But the real terror of this confrontation, we can despise him all we want. The real terror of being confronted by a holy God, a God who is perfectly loving, perfectly just, who's completely other, who shows himself to be alone, the living and true God, 
is that even when we despise him, when we turn away from him, when we pretend he doesn't exist, when we ignore him, he's still a holy God. Like Isaiah, who himself confronted the I am in a vision, or heard the angels cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, we are completely undone. And to make things even harder, he calls us to be holy. It would be one thing if he's, he just says, well, you're an unholy people, but I'm going to love you. But he calls us to be holy. Our text, all of the chapters in some way or other point to God as God as the one who is holy and as a God who calls us to holiness. Now, I know at some point, Rob, you're going to bring us around to the gospel, right? That's what we all want. We want to hear, okay, Rob, God is holy and we're called to be holy. Okay, now give me the gospel. Do you feel that discomfort? I want to bring it, but I want us to think a little bit more about what it means to be a holy people first. I want us to rest in that uncomfortable state a little longer. As we've already noted about holiness, it means to be set apart. There's a, there's a positional reality to this, right? And we're going to come back to that point, but there's a positional reality to this. Throughout the New Testament, believers are referred to as holy ones, saints, sanctified ones. We're called saints. To the saints in Ephesus, to the saints, etc., etc. We're all saints who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who are part of his covenant community. We are the set-apart ones. Yet holiness is also the way we are set apart. It is the active action, if you will, of life in Christ. It's, it's part of who we are. We're called to be holy. We read this back in 1 Peter. Uh, you turn in your bulletins. We saw this. I was part of our, our scripture reading this morning. First uh, Peter chapter 1 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as you, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And this is what God calls Israel to do. It calls Israel to be like him. Chapter 7, verse 6 says, you are to be a people holy to the Lord. And then he goes on and says, uh, uh, do these things, obey. And then in chapter 10, he says, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribes. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, it doesn't say therefore, but that's, the, that's the, what it's intending. Love the sojourner. Oh, it does. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. See, here's the thing. The commandments of God, we can summarize them easily, right? Jesus does. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But sometimes I think we use that summary 
as a tendency to keep our obedience on the general level. Right? So we're very good at saying, uh, oh, we're, we love our neighbor. We love God. That's a, that's, we can kind of sort of fit our version of that into, into, into uh, the, the commandment here. Uh, we keep it general. But when we start to put concrete terms to our holiness, I think it gets uncomfortable. Here's what I mean. We just read chapter 10, verse 16, where it described the character of the Lord. It said, he shows no partiality and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. I think it's right for us to ask the question, am I like God and showing no partiality? Am I like God, executing justice for the fatherless and the widow? Do I even pay attention to the fatherless and the widow? Am I like God, loving the sojourner? This, I got to stop right here and get all political, right? Um, I'm going to stop for like a minute and get political, but I'm not, that's not what I want to do because I don't think it's always helpful to do that because I think what we do with the political is we can, we can kind of put ourselves in a camp and think we're the righteous ones. It's what we do. Well, well, I'm in this camp, therefore I'm righteous, or I'm in this camp, therefore I am righteous. But I think it's better to ask the question of us, both individually and corporately as a church, do we care for the people in our lives who are passing through? Who are, this is not their home. Do we show them the kind of love and care that we show for those who are with us, our own? We're very good at caring for our own. That's just by nature. Our kids, our families, our wives, our husbands, our parents, whatever it is. We're pretty good at caring for them in our messy ways. But what about the random person who comes by and comes through and leaves? We're good at caring for them and their needs. Do we show what it means to be like God, to be holy? And as we wrestle with the specifics, I think, I could be wrong, but it makes me uncomfortable as I think about my own heart and my own life. You see, the more we delve into the law and we think about all the particularities, the more we become aware of God and his greatness and his glory and his holiness, and we become aware of what he requires of us, and it terrifies us. Our last text in chapter 11 lays it out baldly like this. It says, see, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. The curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I'm commanding you today to go after other gods that you have known, not known. Blessings for holiness and obedience And a curse for pursuing the profane and the things of this world. In other words, other gods. See, here's the real hardship. The most terrifying aspect is when we long to be holy, we see what it requires and we just fall short. We can lose heart, can't we? But it need not cause us to lose heart. And here's why. And this is where I want to conclude and close. God makes us holy. He makes us his treasured 
possession. Look at chapter 7 again. For you are a holy people. It's a declaration. Moses is saying to the people of Israel, you are a holy people. You are chosen by God. You are his treasured possession like fine jewels. You are his. You belong to him. He's his own. And again in chapter 8. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. In other words, God is your heavenly father. He loves you as a son. Chapter 9, it says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. No, you're a stubborn people. But the, the, the rest of it is, he's giving it to you not because of your righteousness, but because of another's righteousness, right? Chapter 10, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear, he is your praise, he is your God. This is who you belong to him, this is who you are. And I just want to stop here and think back just for a second on those words, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. That is a really strange word, isn't it? Like, that is a very odd thing. Uh, 10.16 says, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Circumcision is a strange analogy, I think, until we realize that circumcision was the sign of separation for the people of God. It is what defined them or set them apart. But it's more than a sign distinguishing them from the rest of the nations. It was, here are uh, the sign you are the people of God, and here are the Gentiles. That was the separation. But it was more than that. It was a sign of cutting away that which was impure. And it pointed to a need, a desperate need. And the thing about our hearts, we can't do it. We can't cleanse our own hearts. It needs to be purified. We're called to be holy. But we can't do it. Apart from the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And this is what we see in our text in, in, in ways. You are a holy people. You are loved by God. You are not righteous in yourself. You are given the promised blessings. And of course, all these things point to the Holy One of Israel. There was a true Israel. There was one who was perfect. There was one who was righteous. There was one who perfectly obeyed. But who was cut off. Who was circumcised. You see, it was on the cross that the justice of God and the mercy of God met, right? That's where the wrath of God for our sin was poured out as we consider what it means to be To come before a holy God, we have to think first of Jesus Christ who stood before the judge of heaven and earth and endured the wrath of God for us. It's the only one that can make sense of what seems to be an apparent paradox that God's mercy, His forgiveness is present. His justice and wrath are present. 
As we consider this this morning, I just want to close uh, with a passage of Scripture. As we consider the holiness of God, our own unholiness, and our call to walk uh, in newness of life, I want us to think about uh, this reality. That there is a day coming when we will stand before the throne of God and see Him face to face, the great I Am and the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will sing with the angels, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. But it goes and it talks about the revelation of Jesus as the Lamb of God. And it says these words, To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. That's our hope. The holiness of God revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was cut off, that we might be made holy. That we might be called the holy ones of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I confess, uh, touching in on some of the biggest stuff, right? The, the Lord, you, you know my own weakness in trying to describe your holiness, and you know my own frailty and my own sin. And Lord, I, I confess uh, that I tremble at even the thought of trying to stand here and, and deign to speak of your glory and of your holiness. But Lord, I thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the blood of the Lamb of God who was cut off for our sake that we might have life that we might be called holy. And so, Lord, I ask that you would help us by your Spirit to transform our hearts and our lives, that we might walk in in holiness before you. Help us, we pray, by your Spirit. For we pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.